who's afraid of the Welcome to episode 345 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show and welcome to the Primitive Finks. They've been on the show before, but they've got a new EP that came out at the end of October called Horror Party Stomp. You can find it over at theprimitivefinks.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook. This song is called Who's Afraid of the Dark? I hope you check out the album, and I hope you enjoy the music, because I am. I also hope you enjoy what we've got on deck this week on Monster Kid Radio. Before I get to that, though, I have a voicemail from previous guest, Micah S. Harris. Hi, Derek. It's Micah S. Harris. I want to thank you again for allowing me to be part of such an interesting lineup in November. Um, and I have to say that I'm really looking forward to the final installment of The Creeping Flesh, uh, I think the premise of that film is really, really interesting. The execution, not so well, uh, but uh, it's almost like a uh, Quatermass uh, of the 19th century. And I think that idea could have really gone somewhere. Uh, anyway, uh, always interested in hearing about something a bit more obscure or something that doesn't get uh, enough love out there, but uh, it's not necessarily a complete failure, and this is a film that has fascinated me in the past, so looking forward to hearing that, and uh, also uh, hopefully talking to you sometime uh, in the coming year uh, about The Man Without a Body, the follow-up to The Woman Eater, even zanier. All right, I'll be listening. And once again, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for calling in, man. You know, it was a real treat to have you on the show. And just, I love having new voices in the mix. And I love reaching out to fellow creatives. And, you know, I've said it before. I'm going to say it to my dying day. There's just something about being a fan of monster movies that that audience, that, that demographic seems to be more interested and invested in being part of that and making more art based on that, that sort of thing than any other film genre. Don't know why that is. It just happens to be, at least that's what it's been in my experience. Maybe there's a whole group of Bollywood fans that are making their own Bollywood fan films. And I just don't know anything about, but you know, really there are so many materials and objects and movies and music and books and, and content available to us as monster kids created by monster kids. And I love it. And I really appreciate that you shared the frequency of fear with your readers during the appearance that you had here on Monster Kid Radio. You made it available for free to people. You know, even though it's not available for free anymore, listeners, please check it out. It's a great story. Micah, we got to have you back on the show. The Man Without a Body sounds amazing. We got to watch it, man. So yeah, we'll do that next year sometime. You know, when I was pulling up Micah's voicemail, I saw that I had a voicemail from, well, Scott Morris, regular here on the show and one of the head muckety mucks over at Disney Indiana. Didn't realize his voicemail was sitting there. I think he just kind of snuck it in. So let's see what he has to say. Hey, Derek, this is uh, Scott from the uh, Disney Indiana podcast. And 
Uh, I've been out of town for a little while, so I've been catching up on some old shows, and I heard uh, your coverage of uh, It the Monster from Beyond Space, and the guy you had on there was amazing, great. Oh, wait, that was me. Never mind. Um, question I have for you about that specific episode, though, was the music choice that you made from the Lost Cosmonauts. Did you do that on purpose? And you know why. This may be, and correct me if I'm wrong, long-time listeners, but this may be the very first time that I've had somebody send in some feedback about the music specifically that we play on the show, like calling out a specific song. And that's cool. I love playing this spooky instrumental surf music. Sometimes it's not so spooky, but it's still fun instrumental surf. I love it. I love this particular genre of music. And by... Using it here on Monster Kid Radio, my love for it has deepened. One thing that I do when I put an episode together is I look for two things specifically when it comes to the music. One, I'm looking for a relatively new release. And if it's a band that I've had on the show in the past, if they have a new song or a new album coming out, I want to highlight that. And that album from The Lost Cosmonauts came out at the end of October, so it was a relatively new release. It was an EP called Ranger, Lost Cosmonauts, and then the number one.bandcamp.com is where you can find them on Bandcamp. Uh, the EP has four songs on it, and the song was Numbers Stations. Why did I pick that song? Well, the other thing that I try to do when I pick music for the show is if there's a song that has a title or maybe even samples from audio or dialogue from the movie in question, I'll try to pick that and use that on the show if I can get the permission to do so. This wasn't the case with Numbers Stations. I actually just picked that song because I happened to really like that song. Was there anything else at play here? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I know what Numbers Stations is. It's not, I assume, a reference to the 2013 action movie starring John Cusack, I also don't know. Well, actually, it probably could be a reference to uh, the spy signals you can sometimes pick up on shortwave AM radio. Not really sure if that's still a thing, but I know it was earlier in, uh, let's see, early 2010s. So don't really know. Uh, is there something that I'm missing? Is there a reference that I'm not getting? Because I'll be honest, as far as the instrumental surf music goes, as much as I love it, I haven't been in it as long as say like some other people who are into the music i i loved it before i launched monster kid radio but you know there, there are still references and some things in the genre genre speak and slang that i don't get that i don't understand yet but i'm always willing to learn what am i missing here scott i guess we're gonna have to talk about it the next time i have you on the show as well hopefully first part of next year sometime Eh? Huge thanks to Micah and Scott for calling into the show. If you want to be cool like Scott and Micah, you can call in and leave a voicemail yourself. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Now, I'll go over that again at the end of the show. So, what is coming up this week on Monster Kid Radio? Micah already told you. We're talking about the creeping terror. All right. So, um, so you ready to talk about the, the creeping terror? Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> Creeping flesh. Yeah, you got me, eh? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <sighs> no, I'm, I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> you know what? I've never actually seen that, but I've I've read enough about it to kind of know. Isn't that the one with, like, the giant rug that, like, eats people? Or? Yeah. yeah. The, the story about how that movie was made is a lot more interesting than the movie itself. Yeah, I... 
one of those golden turkey books, I think. I can't remember which one it was. Like, I, I, I bought it like a long time ago. I think they kind of like went into the whole details about how it was made and, you know, it was one of those things. Yeah. So, but I've, I've never actually seen it, but yeah, I kind of know the whole, uh, the whole thing behind that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't, we won't be talking about that one too much. So, okay. Okay. No, no, no. The creeping flesh. I, I did. Yeah. Uh, Ugh, big difference in movies. We're talking about The Creeping Flesh with, well, the man whose voice you just heard, Dan Day Jr. He is the man from the Hitless Wonder movie blog. You can find it at dandayjr.blogspot.com, and he posts reviews, it seems like, two, three times a week. And I'll make sure there's a link to this in the show notes, of course. After that, I want to talk a little bit about, well, today. The time this is coming out is late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, which here in the States... Thursday is Thanksgiving, so I'm going to do the cheesy thing and talk about the things that I'm thankful for. I I bet you can't wait, right? (laughs) Of course, the meat of the show, Dan and I talking about Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. We'll talk about a few other things, too, like Monster Bash and Joshua Kennedy and, well, who knows what else. That's all happening right after this. be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Only from the pen of Edgar Allan Poe could come such an horrendous tale of terror. The Conqueror Worm, starring Vincent Price in the most diabolic role of his career. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Get on with your task. The distorted genius of Poe creates poetic beauty from pain and uses idyllic love as a tool of torture. Men sometimes have strange motives for the things they do. I know. You've got an accusation to make. I'll get your confession for you. I'm husband to Sarah Lowe's. <laughs> He's a man who's out to kill both of us. And it appears to me that we should take steps to see to his death first. Leave the children at home. And if you're squeamish, stay home with them. I shall kill you. Please, leave the children at home. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. (laughs) Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. 
Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Welcome. To the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. Dead lives. Dead lives in Tales from the Crypt. The vault of horror is about to open. Learn its terrifying secrets if you dare. Ah! Tales from the Crypt from Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Some material may be unsuitable for pre teenagers. Hi, this is Sarah Karloff, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, you've heard this man's voice if you have good taste because if you have good taste you've watched the movies of joshua kennedy and he was the narrator in the alpha omega man and theseus and the minotaur he's also the man behind the hitless wonder movie blog and somebody that i met at monster bash and i'm proud to now call a friend dan day and it's junior but do you use the junior when we refer to you uh usually it's not like my dad uh... <laughs> 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 let me put it this way my dad is not a film buff so, I mean, if you just called me Dan Day, I don't think he's ever going to, you know, find that out or anything. But, I mean, Junior, it's more of like a professional name type of thing. Kind of like Lon Chaney Jr. Ah, or, okay. And Griffey Jr., you know. Okay. It gives a little bit of an oomph because, for some reason, Dan Day, like, throws people because it's so simple. Huh. I can't tell you how many times I've told somebody my name or said my name on the phone and people, like, how do you, is that your name? How do you spell that? You know, it, it, it's one of those names that is so simple, it, it throws people. But, you know, Dan Day Jr., Dan Day, I've been called plenty worse. So, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to call you Dan moving forward. I just want to make sure because oh, I've been okay, saying that, Dan that, Day that, Jr. That's all the fine. time. All right, cool. Okay. <laughs> so I did meet Dan in person at Monster Bash, but he and I have been friends on Facebook for a while. And, you know, we have a mutual friend in Joshua Kennedy. I'm proud to say Dan's now a friend of mine as well. It was great meeting you at the Bashman. No, it was great meeting you too. I love Monster Bash. I've been going there for like about about four or five years. I didn't go last year, 
but uh, I definitely wanted to go. I mean, the main the main reason was Josh's premiere, which which worked out fantastic. I was really proud of him. Not so much because I had like a small part in the movie. I mean, you don't see me, but you hear me. But just just the fact that he is such a creative, you know, young man, and he's he's he has so much positivity around him. The fact that they were able to premiere that for him, you know, the the people at Monster Bash, Ron Adams and his staff, they do absolutely fantastic job. I'm sure you saw him as well. I mean, whenever I was walking around Monster Bash, you know, you you see Ron, and he's always busy doing something. I mean, he must have been working 24 hours a day there, you know, the whole weekend. So <laughs> I don't know what they do back in that little uh, volunteer room that's off, close <laughs> off to the public, but whatever it is, he must plug in, you know, for a few minutes or something, you know, some Frankenstein lab thing, because he is going nonstop. He, yeah, he's yeah, and never just standing still, you know? I can just imagine what it takes for them to pull off a show like this because – yeah, I've been to some of the bigger shows in Chicago. I, ironically, G-Fest is happening right now in Chicago this weekend. I, I, I did not attend that. I attended that last year. And, you know, it, it takes a lot to put these shows together. And there's just so much going on and, you know, just time constraints and getting everything, you know, organized. I, I can just imagine how, you know, hard it is. And having said that, what I love about Monster Bash, it has more of a low-key family feeling to it. Some of these conventions, especially the bigger ones that I've attended in Chicago, it's almost like being part of an assembly line. You get in there, you you spend all day in line to meet somebody, you get like maybe five seconds of attention from them. If that, you know, you're, you're so worried about being in a certain place at a certain time that you just really don't, you don't, you're, you're just not able to enjoy it. You get stressed out being at the convention instead of, you know, just enjoying the convention and, and with monster bash it's totally different yeah i totally agree with you I, you know i was lucky enough to actually talk to ron for maybe a total of five minutes over the three days so <laughs> yeah you know he, he was able to stand still long enough to get a picture and for me to chat with him for a sec but yeah i mean he and his crew do an amazing job and to have joshua's movie premiere that was pretty cool what did you think of it i i talked to him a little bit but i don't know if i talked to you it was the first time you saw it right Yes, I, I had not seen any of it. I had just seen what he had posted on the internet, and I'm I'm kind of glad because usually with Josh, he'll send me a script drafts, or he'll like give me kind of like an idea of what's going on, or maybe a little bit of footage. He didn't really do that. I mean, I knew obviously he sent me the narration for me to record for him, and I kind of had an idea of what was going on. But I mean, just seeing it like that like a like a world premiere i mean that's why i was you know i actually dressed up for the occasion so people thought i was like josh's bodyguard or his agent or something but uh <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, mark, mark maddox said i look like a fed so <laughs> yeah, that that was my cosplay that, that was i was a i was a fed that was my cosplay from monster bash but no i i was just overwhelmed by it and josh you and you've you've said this on your show you you can tell you watch his films in consecutive order in which they were made you you can tell his his development as a filmmaker mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i think this this one ranks right up there with night of the medusa i you know I, I still say night of the medusa is probably his best film so far i think this one ranks right up there and i'll probably like it even better when i see the extended edition which i uh, believe might be coming out from alpha video 
here pretty soon. I don't have any exact dates or anything. I hope I'm not giving anything away, but... No, I've been on him, too, because I want to know when I can get my hands on it. <laughs> so, uh, I think it'll be coming out from Alpha. And, and you know, Veronica Carlson <laughs> attended the premiere, which, which was just... You, you know, we, we kind of went over to her table and we, we told her what was going on. She kind of knows Josh. She actually saw Josh at the Chiller Convention in New Jersey earlier this year. We didn't want to, you know, bother her or, like, like, make her feel obligated she was supposed to, you know, show up. We just, you know, asked her, you know, if she was able to attend, and, and she did. I know how much that meant to Josh. That was, like, huge. I mean, Veronica Carlson attending the premiere of Theseus and the Minotaur was, like, the Queen of England attending, or Kate Middleton, or, or Princess Diana, or something. Except, of course, Veronica Carlson is on a far higher level than those ladies. <laughs> but, no, that, that how, that's how much it meant. It, not just to me, I mean, it, it, it did mean a lot to me. But just, just the fact, you know, that Veronica Carlson attended Josh's world premiere, that if you know how much of a Hammer fan Josh is, and you know how much of a Hammer fan I am, I mean, that's like a... <clears throat> It's like a huge thing. So, oh yeah, we we know how much of a fan he is. Um, I think everybody who spends about five minutes with him will know how much yeah, of a fan he is. Yeah. And if you don't, just look up the Night Is Young on YouTube, and you'll see him hanging out with some Hammer people, some with with, with who he calls his wife. Which you know, I'm not. That's gonna, right, Mrs. Mrs. Kennedy, and I I was there, you know, during the filming of that video. It, it, <laughs> I I I tell you what, I know. Josh is going to become a major filmmaker because I, I learned that was like the first experience I really had meeting Josh face to face. We had known each other on, on the internet and it was you know, my idea. I was going to monster bash. I believe this was October, 2014. And I told Josh, I said, you know, all these hammer ladies are going to be here. You know, I'm already going to get a room. If you want to, why don't you just share the room with me? You know, if you're able to come out, cause he was, uh, he was attending Pace University in New York at that time, and he agreed. And he said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking about maybe trying to get you know Martine Beswick, maybe film something with her." And my first response, I didn't tell him this, but my first response in my mind was like, "Man, I hope this kid doesn't you know get too disillusioned when he gets turned down." And the next thing I know, I'm standing there watching Martine Beswick and Joshua Kennedy film this video, and I'm like, it's one of these moments where it's like, it's so surreal, it's like, is this actually happening? I mean, and and it did, and that, that taught me, never underestimate this young man. He <laughs> he's, he's going to, I mean, he's he's doing things right now that people wouldn't believe. So, you know, he, he definitely has a future ahead. Yeah, no, he's a good guy, he's a good filmmaker, I can't wait to see what happens next. Uh, you mentioned a second ago the extended edition, so those of you who saw Theseus and the Minotaur at Monster Bash, Great. I'm glad you saw it. But my understanding is that there's one more stop motion creature that needs to be added to the mix. I think there was an earlier battle. They they talk about it earlier in the film about Theseus battling a turtle, a giant turtle. And I think it's actually part of the uh, the Theseus legend. So I, I think there's at least one battle. I, I don't know if there's going to be any more. I, I don't know if he's got anything else or any, right. any bonus material. So... As far as I know, according to him, I think it turned out okay. I, th I think he felt that maybe the way their video system it, it didn't it didn't look as colorful as he wanted it to look. But I, I think for the most part, you know, he was he was definitely uh, happy with how everything turned out. I was meeting with uh, a Monster Kid Radio regular, uh, Chris McMillan, 
yesterday, in fact, over coffee. We, we, we meet about once every three or four weeks. And just kind of, we work on a different things, a few different projects together. And we were talking about it. And he was asking me all about Monster Bash. It was the first time I'd been back since Monster Bash to chat with him. And I told him all about Joshua's movie. And I told him, and I think Joshua, I told him this as well at the bash. He handled it so well when he got up and said this was a real thrill. It was like my movie was being projected at a drive-in with a real murky print with the car headlights going all over the place. It's perfect. I mean, because <laughs> that's exactly what it was. It wasn't the best projection, but man, it just kind of gave it that that feel and it worked so well. And I was so happy for him. Like I said, I mean, having Veronica Carlson there, Richard Clemenson, the the editor and founder of Little Shop of Horrors. Right. You know, there was a lot, a lot of other people there, you know, watching it. And it's what, you know, if, if you're a monster kid, if you haven't been the Monster Bash, and I realize... You know, time constraints, cost constraints, that plays into it as well. I live in South, just outside of South Bend, Indiana, so it only takes me about like six hours to drive, which, you know, I mean, it, it's not that bad. But I mean, if you ever get a chance to go to a Monster Bash, I would heartily recommend it because it is a convention, but at the same time, it's more of a down home. It's, it's definitely more fan friendly than some of the bigger conventions. It's the best way I could put it. The fact that somebody like Josh is able to premiere one of his films there, mm-hmm. I mean, it's great. You know, the, you get so many people, so many artists, so many, uh, you know, writers, producers, people are doing their own stuff, not just films, but just creating things, you know, like many of the people you interviewed during your uh, last Monster Kid Radio about Monster Bash. It, it, it's just just a wealth of creativity, and it and it also gives you a feeling of you're not alone, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes you realize there's, there, there are people out there, you're, being a Monster Kid, it can be lonely sometimes, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, when, when you're back in the real world, I, I think I remember... When you got back from Monster Bash, you posted something on Facebook about how there was almost an emotional letdown. And I, I totally understood what you meant by that. There's definitely that that coming down. I, I, I'm still coasting on the fumes. I mean, it's been you know, several <laughs> yeah. weeks, but I'm still kind of riding the buzz. And the fact that I still have all this other audio to put out, I'm sure helps because it reminds me of that. But yeah, it's, it's such an amazing time and show and you get to meet people that you've been friends with online for a while. You get to meet Dan, Josh, uh, you know, Christopher Armim and that crew, uh, just everybody. And the thing about being a fan of these movies, and I, I've always tried to figure this out and I, I just kind of have to accept that it is what it is. I don't know why this is, but there's something about the fans of these types of movies that makes them, in my opinion, feel like they have to contribute and be part of it in terms of creating material related to it. You've got people writing prequel novels of White Zombie. You've got people writing novelizations of Manos the Hands of Fate. You've got people making movies in the style of these movies like Josh or Chris. You've got artists. You've got all these people making material. You've got fanzines and magazines. You don't see that with fans of romantic comedies. You, no, you, know, no, it, you just don't. No, it, it, and I'm sure you have as as well as I have put up with years and years. Oh, you know these goofy, you goofy people in these goofy monster movies. But and you go to something like Monster Bash. That's probably the safest place in America to be. In. <laughs> and I, I've told this to Josh. People that are not really like film buffs or monster movie film buffs, I kind of refer to them as civilians. Uh, so many of these people have just the wrong impression. Oh, you you like old monster movie? You must have a covenant with death. You must love seeing people get killed. And it's like, no, it's, it's like nothing like that at all. No. It'd be, it, it's just a fantastic community, and it's it's not anything like you know people think it's like death metal or something or you know and something like that. And 
I mean, if you do, great. If you dig that stuff, great. But it's not, it's not about that, you know? No, no, so. no. No, it's, it's, no, I don't like seeing people get killed. I don't like seeing, you know, and then there's the politically incorrect as, oh, you know, women are always getting killed in these movies, and that's what you guys just want to watch. And No, no, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't associate with those people very much anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> that's one good thing the internet's good for is, is bringing us all together and forming these communities. When I really started getting into these films, it was when I was a teenager in the, in the 1980s, and I started watching Senguli. Oh. Back in the mid 1980s oh, wow. on Channel 32. Hmm? Wow, that's great. Channel 32 in Chicago. That channel is kind of like what MeTV is now. I mean, Channel 32 showed all the great old shows. They showed Star Trek and Batman and Lost in Space and The Stooges and and their their film library was incredible because back then, you know, Spengooly showed everything. He didn't just show Universal films. He showed Hammer. He showed American International, Toho. Amicus, uh, you know, low-budget independent movies from 1950s. Now he's kind of stuck in that universal contract. I know a lot of people complain about it, but back in his, his glory days in, in the 1980s on Channel 32 in Chicago, if you're from the Midwest, you know, northern Indiana, Illinois, southwestern Michigan, you know, you you probably know who Sven Gulli is. And and that's the thing, is a lot of people now who have just discovered Sven Gulli through MeTV, they think he's like kind of like a recent guy. They, they don't realize he his first broadcast out of Chicago, I believe, was 1979. He, he was the son of Sven Gulli back then. Right. So he's, he's, been, he's been doing this a long, long time. There's been a couple interruptions where he, you know, he hasn't been on the air, you know, consecutively. But but he is definitely a horror legend, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that was introduced to you know classic fantastic cinema through Sven Gulli. I tell people he he was basically my film school. <laughs> what it was meaning to get to about the internet was you know in the 1980s you you didn't have the internet, you didn't have YouTube. That's true. Um, you know, in in northern Indiana, you know, I was like, oh, there's Dan and his goofy old monster movies that he likes. I mean, you 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 literally were out on an island. So, I mean, the, the Internet definitely has its drawbacks, and some of these fan communities have some of their drawbacks on the Internet. But for the most part, I mean, that, that's how I basically got together with Josh, mm-hmm. you know, was through the Internet. So It's a great community. I'm proud to be part of it, and I was so glad to meet you and can call you a friend now. So. Same thing here. Hope to see you at future Monster Bashes many, many times over the years. Yeah, I've already got my room reserved. Oh, do you? So, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a double room, so Josh will be there. And, and, the way Josh is, he'll probably have a film ready for next year as well. Hey, good for him, man. Good for him. I'm I'm so glad I was, a, you know, between you and me and uh, anybody who's listening to this, I was a little worried as to what was going to happen after he got out of film school, you know, and just because, you know, it's a change. You know, he, he went back yeah. to, to his home in Texas. But, man, he's just going. I mean, he's, as, of, as we speak right now, he's working on mounting a stage production of Frankenstein. Huh? <laughs> the yeah. guy doesn't know how to stop. Oh, he, he is just, yeah, he is just so, you know, I mean, his creativity level is, is amazing. And, and it, it's not like a type of creativity where, you know, oh, I got to get, you know, I'm, I got to get ahead. I'm going to be like, come famous or anything like that. It's, it's just pure creativity. You know, he, he said to me, you know, if, if I'm working at a McDonald's and I'm and I can still turn out these movies, I'll, I'll still do it. When you hear something like that, you think, oh, you know, he's just saying that just to say that. But no, with Josh, I I totally believe it. I mean, that's who he is. Yeah, he said that to me too. And I asked him, what are you going to do when you graduate film school? What what kind of job do you get? It's like, doesn't matter because I'm going to keep making movies. Like, oh. Exactly. 
yeah. good, good for you. I was happy to see the movie there and to see it be so well received. I haven't played it on the show yet. By the time this episode goes out, people will have probably heard it. But I specifically asked Veronica Carlson what she thought of Josh's movie. So that's that'll be coming. Oh yeah, we 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 talked to her about it. So yeah, well, she was holding know. court to like two three a.m. every night. She's just like the most absolutely wonderful person in the world. I her her patience. Yeah, I, I can imagine how some of the you know goofy guys like us. Like, this is like the third time I've met her, and like I said, she's like she's like royalty to me. I'm still nervous around her, even though I shouldn't be. But you know, she is just an absolutely wonderful person. And for someone like me, who grew up watching Hammer films, and whose you know favorite actors are Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and, and just was enamored of the Hammer ladies. She was the first Hammer person I met. If it had not turned out very good or if it had turned out disappointing, that would have been like, you know, just a horrible experience. But if anything, it turned out like even better than I expected it to be. And, you know, I had read interviews with her. I I knew that everybody considered her, you know, a wonderful lady, which she is. And I mean, she's like even even more wonderful than you expect her to be. Just, just, Just a wonderful person. You know, now that I think about it, I think she's the first Hammer person I've ever met. Having met her at the Monster Bash. Yeah, and and I think she kind of realizes, because unfortunately, there's not really that too many Hammer people left, and a lot of them, you know, are in England, and because of, you know, health or situation, they're just not able to come over here, and I think she kind of realizes what her status is, how many people, you know, look to her and, and consider her part of their their upbringing, or not, you know, just just part of what they love about Hammer Mm -hmm. films, and I, she kind of understands that, and she knows and I, but it's not an act. I mean, she's you know is definitely as wonderful as she is. But I think she also realizes that she has kind of almost a not so much a role to play, but but just something that she has to live up to for the fans. I think she's great. So listeners, if you ever ever have a chance to meet Veronica Carlson, oh yeah, yeah, do, do so and tell her that Derek and Dan said hi. If you do, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't exactly mean for this to become a, a critique of Monster Bash, but. I'm glad it happened. A little impromptu talk about the bash. Oh, no. I, well, I, we have some other business to get to, though. Yeah, yes, yes, we do. We have well, some other yeah, business. Me, me and you could be talking here for like nine hours, so. Hey, you know, that's that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. I say it every time, and every time a couple of monster kids get gabbing about something, it just, yeah, trails off into mm-hmm. three or four different other, yeah, no problem. Yeah, let's focus. All right, let's focus on what we do with every new time guest on Monster Kid Radio. And while you have been on the show uh, in the past uh, with the and Monster boy, Bash boy, coverage. Boy, cameos and, you know, the, yep. <laughs> the trailers for uh, Josh's movies. So. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. This is the first time you've been an actual proper guest to talk about a movie. So we're going to play a round of the Classic Five for new listeners. The Classic Five is a game in which I take a deck of cards here. I've got a deck. Let me give it one more shuffle. All right. I hope you heard that. So this is a deck of cards. Each card has a this or that, yes or no style question on them. There are no right or wrong answers. The questions are all about classic monster movies, and it's designed to give listeners an opportunity to get to learn a little bit more about our guests on the show. Dan, are you ready to play the classic five? Yes, sir. All right. Card number one. Ooh, Godzilla or Gamera? Oh, I got to go with Godzilla. Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, king of the monsters, it's alive. A gigantic beast, stalking the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror, Ah! raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. 
Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Incredible Titan of Terror. Wiping out a city of six million in a holocaust of flame. Jet planes cannot destroy it. Bombs cannot kill it. All modern weapons fail. Is this the end of our civilization? Can the scientists of the world find a way to stop this creature? For the answer, see Godzilla, King of the Monsters. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. A tale to stun the mind. More fantastic than any ever written by Jules Verne. More terrifying than any ever shown on the screen. Awesome. Incredible. Unbelievable. A story beyond your wildest dreams. Dynamic violence. Savage action. Spectacular thrills. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I love camera. Okay, I've got I've got all the camera films on DVD or Blu-ray, but you know, I mean, it, it's Godzilla. Okay, sorry, sorry, Gamera. You know, it, it's Godzilla. <laughs> hey, like I said, man, there's no right or wrong answer. So Godzilla works for me. Guard number two, favorite Ed Wood film. Mm, favorite Ed Wood film. I, you know, some people love those movies. I. Those aren't the type of movies I watch over and over again. I, I would just have to like give like a what was Bride of the Monster. Okay, is that the one with Lugosi? Uh, Lugosi's in a couple. He's in Bride of the Monster and Plan Nine from Outer Space. Yeah, so. uh, the one, the one where he's the you know the the broken down old scientist. Okay. I'll pick right, that right, one. Hello, take the girl to my quarters. Number three, favorite Boris Karloff role. Well, obviously, you ha- I mean, the, the generic answer is the Frankenstein monster. Mm-hmm. And one of my blogs, Take a Drink, I, <laughs> I, I wrote the top five Boris Karloff horror from film performances. I'm trying to remember what I actually put in that blog. I know one of them was the, was the Mummy. Okay. One was the Body Snatcher. Ooh. I think I put in Doctor from the Seven Dials. Uh, which that that's one that just kind of doesn't really get talked about for Karloff. But yeah, you have to go with the Frankenstein monster. Oh, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. (laughs) To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, 
the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! You know, what, what he did in that was just... And you also have to remember, at that time, I mean, yes, you, you had Lon Chaney, there, there was a couple other films in which people played monsters, but as for a sound film, and giving the monster or the creature all these emotions and, and making you, you know, feel for the creature, it, and it still holds up today. I mean, I, I don't think there's any other uh, actor who has portrayed the Frankenstein monster that has ever come close to Karloff. I mean, he's, he's just so far above everybody else's level, it, it, it has to be the Frankenstein monster. You like him better than Christopher Lee as a monster, huh? Yes, I do. For the Frankenstein monster, yes. Lee did a very good, actually, he did a pretty great job. He didn't have much to work with, you know. Um, he's, he's barely in the movie, and he's, he's very alien as the Frankenstein. His portrayal was different than Karloff's because he wasn't allowed to give the emotional depth that Karloff was. Okay. But Karloff just, you know, and, and you know, Bride of Frankenstein probably is even better performance than, you know, the first Frankenstein. Like I said, no wrong answers. I was just curious because I know you're such a fan of you know Cushing and Lee and that crew. So I, I was just just curious. So. Yeah, I, I I love all these. Yeah, you know, I'm not one of these people that are like oh Universal is better than Hammer or AIP is better. Yeah, you you know I I appreciate all these. There's not like one monster movie person or monster movie legend that I you know say I hate or anything. I mean you have to be. I think you have to be pretty open-minded to be a film buff overall, not just a monster movie film buff. You you have to kind of open yourself up to, you know, different interpretations and seeing different films. You know, I mean, you, you can rate one better than the other, but I'm not one of these people that like, oh, this guy sucked, you know. Okay, no, fair enough, fair enough. All right, well, that was card number three, right? All right, so card number four. Favorite Hammer vampire film that does not have Peter Cushing? Kiss of the Vampire. Listen to the flight of the vampire bats summoned from Hades to kill, to destroy. See Kiss of the Vampire in color. Kiss of the Vampire, I think, is one of the best Hammer vampire films of them all. Really? Don Sharp, I believe, directed it. He, he's an excellent director. He directed the first Fu Manchu movie for, with Christopher Lee. Mm -hmm. Very underrated director. He keeps things at a very good pace. And and Kiss of the Vampire, I, I know some people, the ending, you know, all the toy bats or whatever, but you have to, once again, when you're watching these films, you have to put them in the context in which they were made, mm -hmm. which, you know, so many people don't. And, you know, I, I think it works fantastic. And Edward D'Souza, as the leading man, he's very good. Usually, you know, that David Manners type role is like the worst role <laughs> in any monster movie. You know, yeah. like, I, oh, here's the, here's the young romantic leading man. He's basically worthless. But Edward D'Souza actually plays it to where he, he's not just there. You know, he gives it a kind of realistic kind of where, where the audience doesn't look at him as an idiot. And Jennifer <laughs> Daniel is absolutely... <laughs> Jennifer Daniels absolutely gorgeous. She's one of the most underrated of the Hammer ladies. I've always had a a big crush on Jennifer Daniels. J just ask Josh Kennedy; he'll tell you. <laughs> and you know, she was in the Reptile as well. But I I believe those are her only two theatrical film appearances. Hmm. And yeah, she did a lot of British TV. Oh, okay. I think she did a lot of stage work. I think she's just one of those actresses that was more of a stage person. I don't think she you know really wanted to go out of her way maybe to get in the films or TV, but 
you know, she she's kind of like the domesticated hammer hottie. You know, if, if <laughs> there was there was a hammer hottie that you could be believable as a wife, because I mean, she basically plays the same role in Kiss of the Vampire as she does in the Reptile. You know, she's the she's the faithful, helpful wife, but you know, she's very good actress and she's very attractive, but. Once, once again, her and Edward D'Souza have a kind of realistic, like, you you can believe in these characters' quality. What doesn't work in a lot of the older horror films is, you know, the young leading romantic man or the or the young leading lady, they, they just, you know, seem just totally out of place. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's a movie like that where you have, like, a Karloff or a Lugosi or a George Zuko or a Lionel Atwill, the leading man, the leading lady characters get totally overwhelmed. And that doesn't really happen in Kiss the Vampire. Of course, there's no major other horror film stars in it. But, no, I, I think Kiss the Vampire is a, a great film. That makes a lot of sense. I totally understand what you're coming from. Cause, uh, Thank you. Actually, I just, this morning I was recording with somebody uh, for a previous, for another episode of Monster Kid Radio. And uh, we were talking about a uh, universal science fiction film. And one of the comments that came up, when, and we both kind of agreed with it, was that because this universal science fiction film didn't have any of the quote-unquote major sci-fi actors that we associate with universal you know, horror and sci-fi, it made the movie a little bit more enjoyable because you weren't stuck on, oh, hey, there's John Agar, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I think, I think Kiss of the Vampire... That it, it kind of works to its advantage because, of course, I've seen it so many times. Obviously, uh, you know, I know what's going <laughs> on. But but if if you haven't seen it, you don't really know. I mean, you you kind of know it's a Hammer film, so you kind of know what's going on. But at the same time, there's no Cushing, there's no Lee. You, you're you're kind of surprised by it in a way, and it has a great opening sequence. I know, I know, Josh. Yes, it does. Josh Kennedy just absolutely loves that opening sequence, and you know he should because it's it's one of the best opening sequences in any Hammer film, and it has one of the best film scores of any Hammer film, James Bernard, that that piano concerto Mm -hmm. in the middle of it. Good stuff. All right, final card. (laughs) Jimmy Sangster or Terrence Fisher? Oh, I got to go with Terrence Fisher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it's fair, because Sangster didn't really direct as much as Fisher. No, no, he, he didn't. His scripts are... I I have a theory about Hammer films. I think the, their biggest problems were the scripts. Okay. The, the scripts are, I think they're serviceable, but I also have to look at it this way. A lot of those scripts were written due to budget. Yeah. Because, you know, Jimmy Sangster worked behind the scenes with Hammer. I think he was like an assistant director or something like that, or, or stage manager. And then he started writing for them. And I'm pretty sure that when he was writing scripts for Hammer, in his own mind, he was thinking, well, you know, we're not going to have enough of a budget to do this. I'm going to have to write things this way. Right. And Anthony Hines, when he wrote his John Elder, I mean, Anthony Hines was, you know, Hammer's main producer. He wrote the same way. And a lot of these scripts, if you took away Cushing and Lee and the production design and, and the music and, and all the the ambiance around them, they don't really, I don't think they really hold up too well. Mm, interesting. Okay. Some all, uh, Terrence Fisher, he's, you know, we're going to get ready to talk about Freddie Francis here for creeping flesh. And I think Terrence Fisher and Freddie Francis have a lot of, they have, they have a lot of similarities in that you can tell there's some of their films. They were a bit more invested in it than others. Mm -hmm. I think Fisher's very good at, at, at concisely edited, you know, action sequences and, and climactic sequences. He's he's really good at that. He's really good at creating an atmosphere. But sometimes his movies do kind of drag a little bit. 
and some of the comedy interludes, like the whole Miles Mallison, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, it kind of sticks out too much for me. I mean, once again, I, I got to bring up Josh because we're always talking about these things constantly. <laughs> yeah, Josh loves the whole mile, the, the whole Miles Mallison appearances. I could, you know, eh, they're okay, but it's, you know. <laughs> but yeah, going going back to see, I'm I'm just going off on all these tangents, and half the time I can't remember what it is I started talking about. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely, I would have to put Terrence Fisher over Jimmy Sangster. Let, let, let's put it this way. Terrence Fisher directed Horror of Dracula. Jimmy Sangster directed Lust for a Vampire. There you go. So. <laughs> okay, well, that was the classic <laughs> five. Um, <laughs> what do you, how do you think you fared? Um, I, I guess I did okay. I'm sure people are listening to this. Like, what this guy's talking about? This is going off on all these tangents. but uh. It's all good. Like I said, no right or wrong answers. It, it's all about you know the conversation. So. No, I, I love this game. It's, it's, it's a great game. Did you actually ask me five questions? I think that was five. Okay. Let's I wasn't see, keeping uh, track. So. Godzilla and Gamera, Boris Karloff, Favorite Ed Wood, and then the last two about Hammer stuff. Cool. Oh, all okay. right. All right. There we okay. go. There we go. I was having so much fun, I, I, I didn't realize what was going on. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, will the fun continue as we talk about uh, the film this week on Monster Kid Radio? Frankenstein's monster can be destroyed by fire. Dracula, by a silver stake driven through his heart. But nothing, nothing will avail against the absolute evil of the creeping flesh. The creeping flesh... From Columbia Pictures, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. I know you love this movie. In fact, I think you even filled out the survey that I have a link to on our website. You know, be a guest of Monster Kid Radio, and you mentioned this film. Uh, I think I did. Actually, yeah. I, I thought I put, I'll talk about anything, but I might have. I well, might that's have true. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was one that you mentioned. It's 1973's okay. The Creeping Flesh, which, you know, and I've said this before on the show, I typically try to stay, you know, 30s to the 60s, that sort of thing, toe dipping outside of that a little bit. But, you know, The Creeping Flesh, it feels like a Hammer film so much. And I've always said Hammer's always going to have a place on Monster Kid Radio. So I don't care. It's 1973, fits in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. It's got Peter Cushing. It's got Christopher Lee, directed by Freddie Francis. No, it's not a Hammer film, but you know what? It's got three of the big names. Let's, yes. It, it fits here, no problem. It should have been a Hammer film. I think it's way better than a lot of the material that Hammer was coming out with during that time. You know, yeah, Hammer did seem to have, I don't want to call it a rough patch or a dry spot, but um, you know, 70s Hammer does not have the same feel as the stuff they're known for. No, no. I, I think they were trying to be a bit more exploitative. And, and of course, people will say, well, Hammer was always exploitative. And I, I can understand that. But in, in the early 70s, they, they just seemed to like really go off the rails at some time. Yeah. You know, a lot of the people that had worked there had not been around there for a while. They were trying new directors and new scriptwriters, which they should have been doing. You know, you, you always need mm -hmm. to do that. But some of these movies, some of the new directions they went into, like the vampire lovers that worked, but then you have something like Scars of Dracula, which is just, you know, so, <laughs> so horrible. And, and oh, I like Scars of Dracula. Come on. Yeah, I, I'm not, I am not a fan of Scars of Dracula. It's my least favorite of the Lee Dracula films, but I do like Scars of Dracula. Okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> we can still be friends, right? We're, we're okay? Yeah, that's right. All right. All right. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right, though. There is a... A different is a tonal shift. Um, fortunately, there were other outlets for the people that made Hammer great. Amicus, uh, 
and then Tygon. I Ty- believe, yeah, mm-hmm. I believe this was from Tygon. I've heard Tygon pronounced so many different ways. So, if you look at the genre cinema of the UK, you've got Hammer, you got Amicus, and then I feel like Tygon is like the number three. You know, like the the third player there, and Tygon is probably best known to fans of Vincent Price because they put out Witchfinder General. Yes, Witchfinder General. I believe they did Blood on Satan's Claw. Oh, did they? That's right. Which, yeah, which is definitely a a very very dark horror film yeah. not 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 a fun monster movie um <laughs> but it is a very very good film it's more an admirable film than like the type of movie you'd want to see over and over again Tygon didn't put out a lot of stuff but what they did was very unique it had a kind of a quirky quirkiness to them mm-hmm. that made them stand out i think from the hammer and amicus films because but by the early 1970s yeah I think Hammer and Amicus were basically almost like, you know, redoing the same thing. You know, Amicus, I mean, I, I love those anthology movies, but, you know, they, they just, especially if you, like, watch them, like, real close together, it, it can it can kind of get a little bit tiresome after a while. They, they kind of blend together a little bit, you know, and, and I, I think it's fair to say, it's, we're, not, we're not saying we don't enjoy it, because, I mean, if it works, don't fix it. But, no, I think you're right. I think they do tend to blend. Yeah. What can you do, you know? But you're right about Tygon. They really have a different feel. Uh, Witchfinder General or the Conqueror Worm, depending on which country you saw it in, I suppose, is so different, especially considering you've got Vincent Price as this bloodthirsty villain, this this terrible human being. It, it's really more of a historical melodrama because right. the guy he's playing actually actually existed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's the English Civil War, which I barely know anything about. I don't think most other Americans barely know anything about. You know, it's got like Oliver Cromwell in it. And, you know, he's, he's a major British historical character. And, and it, it is just, you know, so downbeat and mm. just, just so somber a film. Uh, and, and the Creeping Flesh is kind of like that as well. The Creeping Flesh is nowhere near as violent as Witchfinder General. Oh, no. But the, the, <laughs> no, the, the Creeping Flesh definitely has a very downbeat, somber quality to it. If you uh, remember the, the opening of the Creeping Flesh, you see this painting mm-hmm. of this you know, really bizarre alien figure, and he, he's feeding on human gore, and it, it's this very expressionistic painting. And that being the first image you see in the film, that kind of sets the whole tone, sets the whole attitude for the film. It kind of makes you realize, hmm, you know, what, what, what's going yeah, on What are we here? about to see here? Yeah, what, what is yeah. this? And why is yeah. Peter Cushing painting that? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yes. And he's in this, you see in the background, you see nothing but white, but yet you see all these, you know, laboratory tables set up all over the place, kind of like a very expressionistic, almost half of a set. And he's trying to convince this other doctor, you know, uh, there's evil unleashed on the world and I have to tell you about it. And and he, he just looks so emotional. He's just so broken down. And he's not wearing his toupee either. Right. I hate to break it to people, but Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee wore toupees. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I hope I'm not, you know, disillusioning anybody there. <laughs> but... No, it, it, it's a great opening, and then the opening segues to, I believe, three years earlier, 1893, and Peter Cushing's character, whose name Emmanuel Hildern, mm-hmm. he's a British scientist, he's just come back from New Guinea, and he's found this incredibly large sort of humanoid skeleton, but it doesn't look anything like any typical human skeleton would. Right. He's just brought it back to his home. Because that's what you do when you find something big and scary and creepy. You just take it home. <laughs> yes. You know, I didn't even <laughs> think about that. 
know, he just shows up after three years. He hasn't seen his daughter in three years. Oh, look, I got this. I got this giant skeleton from New Guinea. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't want to like, you know, trust it with any customs or anything. I mean, you know. Yeah, I don't know how you'd get that through customs. You think right? we should put it in a warehouse? No, those guys will just knock it over. I'll just take it home with me. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, see, if you just leave it in storage somewhere, you have Horror Express happen. So, you know, you, you've got to take it home, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude. Hey, let just drill a little hole and see what's in that thing. Okay. Just pour some water on it. You know, <laughs> I, I just gave away the, the creeping flesh. Uh, you know, no spoilers. That's movie. Yeah, we're fine. There there will be a warning at the beginning of the show. We're fine. Yes. Yes. The, the famous uh, fellow <laughs> warning. The flash when he starts flashing back. That's the first time we, I got any real sense of when this movie was taking place, when the story was taking place. Because when he's in that room in that lab setup, making that painting or painting that painting, that could have been any time. I mean that that could have been exactly. even contemporary to the time the movie was released in the seventies. It really could have been anything, just because it was such a white stark background. Yeah. So now we go back and we realize, oh wait a minute, we're in the very late eighteen hundreds here. Yeah, eighteen ninety three. I actually watched the film again last night on the uh, Mill Creek Blu-ray. That was a, uh, I, I I did some work here, so I did some preparation. I, I did. Not just doing it off the cuff. Well, I probably could, you know, but... Well, uh, you love this movie. Well, yes, I, I do. <laughs> and, you know, when I see it, every time I do see it, I think I'm more impressed with it, like I said, because you compare it to what Hammer was coming out with at the time. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very nice-looking film. It has wonderful period atmosphere to it. Mm-hmm. Of course, Freddie Francis, he was a cinematographer, a great an Oscar-winning cinematographer. That's right, for glory. The cinematographer on this film was Norman Warwick, and I think he had worked with Freddie Francis before. But the, the the film has a very lush look to it. I mean, it's obviously not a, a high-budget film. I mean, most of it takes place in uh, Peter Cushing's home and Christopher Lee's asylum, but it, it doesn't look cheap or tacky at all. Mm-hmm. And there were more than a few Hammer films made around this time that, that did look tacky. This film does not look tacky at all. It look, looks very, very well done. Yeah, it, it does. It looks great. It's lit well. Uh, Norman Warwick uh, did the cinematography. He was the DP on the Abominable Dr. Fives, which has all... Oh, he was? I did not know that. Those great colors and such in that film. Oh, that. Well, yeah, that film looked looked gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when you talk about the Abominable Dr. Fives, the look, it's Robert Feist. Everybody talks about him. And I, mm-hmm. I think most people you know, who are not real big film buffs don't realize how important the cinematographer is mm-hmm. and sometimes a cinematographer can be even more important than a director right and when you have an accomplished cinematographer as a director you can't help but see exactly you know i, I we've talked about freddie francis over on the hammer films podcast i i did with scott freddie francis's eye is is so unique and spot on for this kind of material it just looks so good he's very good at putting together uh sequences and camera shots it, it looks like it's how best can I articulate this? It it looks like it's very expensive and it's very, you know, hard to do, but it's actually quite simple. And, of course, that was, you know, he worked in low-budget movies, you know, most of his life, which I don't think he liked doing. Sure. But, no, he he has this kind of quality to bring some visual extra oomph to whatever he was working on. And, like I said, there's a lot, some of his movies, you can tell he wasn't into it as others, but I think this one definitely, he loved working with Cushing and Lee. Uh, I think he had a little bit more freedom to do things on this film. I know when he did all those films for Amicus, and in his interviews, he's always complaining about, 
you know, Milton Sabotsky and, you know, the guy was like over my shoulder. He edited my stuff. I, I think in the creeping flesh, I think he had a bit more freedom, a bit more uh, space to move around in, I guess you could say. I think, I don't know, maybe working for a smaller studio, they couldn't afford to have somebody hanging over his shoulder or, you know, they were just more yeah. willing to take chances. They didn't have a quote unquote formula they had to stick to. They, maybe they felt, you know, we've got Cushing, we've got Lee, we've got Freddie Francis, you know, it's, it's set in Victorian England, just they know what they're doing, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I kind of wish a lot of other filmmakers had done around that same time. <laughs> because, no, the, like I said, the, the film looks great. Cushing and Lee, the, the costumes, I mean, you, you know, they're wearing the cravats and the spats and the frock coats and the top hats. I mean, that that's what, no, that's what Cushing and Lee fans, that's what we see them as in our own minds, you know, them wearing that type of costume. Right. You know, they, they, a lot of actors and actresses, you know, you put them in that type of costume and they, they just totally look wrong. They, they, you know, they just look totally out of place. Whereas Cushing and Lee, I mean, they, it's, it's almost the, ex- the exact opposite. When you see them in like 20th century clothing, that's when they don't, you know, they don't look right. I mean, they, they just, for whatever it is, they, they just were perfect for that type of period film. You know, you've been saying that, you're, as you're saying that, I'm sitting here thinking, I, I can't think of anything in which, you know, he wore contemporary clothing and it, and it felt right. You know, he does feel right in the period piece costumes. I think because I've seen Lee and more stuff, you know, I, I can see him in like a suit or something like from the, the James Bond film that he did or something, but no, yeah. you're right about it. I mean, that's, I just imagine now that Cushing's closet with nothing but <laughs> period clothes, you know? Well, well what, what about Island of Terror? Well, that's a good point, which is a phenomenal film. Yeah. Huh. No, and that that recently came out on blue. Well, I I mean, he, you know, even when he's in contemporary clothes, he's still dressed very well. You oh, know, yeah. he's he's not he's not ostentatiously dressed, but he's mm-hmm. dressed like a a well a well-dressed Englishman should. I mean, he had that proper English gentleman vibe about him mm-hmm. and he definitely, you know, used that to, you know, I, I think the only movie that he looked poor or was like Tales from the Crypt. I can't really think of any. Oh other. yeah, when he played like Grimstike in that one second. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. Right. No, you're right. You hear or you you read our interviews from you know the actresses that work with him, like Veronica Carlson. They even say you know when he when he wasn't in costume, he he, he didn't look right. You know because <laughs> you just you just expect him to be dressed like that all the time. Yeah, yeah, and and he looks good in this. Uh, you know, and you've got him as a scientist type, which is one of his go-to roles for. Yes. Yes. Better or worse, he makes a good scientist. <laughs> yes, yes, and he's he's looking through the magnifying glass. Yep, you know, you, shot. you got you got to have that shot of him looking through the magnifying glass. But it's a yep. very different scientist than Baron Frankenstein. I mean, this one he's he's trying to do good, but at the same time he unleashes. You know, it's it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, he just brings <laughs> everything. He totally screws everything up. And he's his character is very emotionally fragile. I mean, this is a guy who, mm-hmm. in the in the movie, you find out that his wife had just passed away in his half brother's asylum. His half brother being Christopher Lee, and of course Christopher Lee would be running an asylum. I mean, you know, oh, what, of course, what, yeah. what, what other job would he have in eighteen ninety three other than being a vampire? <laughs> but you, you find out that his wife was in put into the asylum years and years ago and he did not tell his daughter about it covered it up from his daughter because he's scared that his daughter is going to might go insane and he winds up precipitating 
his daughter's insanity. So, mm-hmm. it, yet on, on the surface, it seems like his scientist, Peter Cushing's scientist, is this fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned, Victorian you know, type of guy, kind of like one of the absent-minded professor. But then you start to wonder about some of his motives. Maybe he's kind of screwed up in his own way. Well, and that question definitely gets brought up at the end of the film. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. Is he a reliable narrator? Is yes. is what happened, what really happened? But I really appreciate, like you said, he's emotionally fragile. And that's not the kind of role you typically see him in. Like you said, he's not the Dr. Frankenstein. You see real terror on his face. And I don't think I've ever seen him look as scared as he did in this. Oh, no. Like, like I said, I watched this again last night and, and, and towards the end of the film when basically his whole life is breaking down and he's just really bringing it. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. very rare that you see him in the, in that state in any type of film. And, and of course he has reasons for doing it. He's not overacting. But no, it, it makes perfect sense. Definitely, you know, he's got a whole bunch of emotional stuff going on, and I know some Monster fans get a little bit tired of hearing about, oh, Peter Cushing and his dead wife, And but it has to be said, this film was actually produced in 1972, mm-hmm. and this was not that far away from when Peter Cushing's wife passed away, and I'm sure that had to play into this role as well. I mean, it, it's it's not a coincidence that after his wife died, in the next three or four years, he made so many films in which his character was a widower. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that maybe he didn't like seek out those roles, but he, he kind of gravitated toward them, I think. Yeah, I don't think there's any mistake. Or if it if it did happen, you know, he I can't remember which film it was where he brought a, a picture of his wife to put on the desk. Yeah, that was cool. And, and Veronica Carlson, you know, talked about that at mm-hmm. a Monster Bash. She's talked about that before. That's, it's, you know... She always brings up that story, and it, it is a really sad story, and that whole thing with his wife passing away, I'm sure he brought a lot of that to the Creeping Flesh. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it works. I mean, you, you pull from what you got, I guess, and it, and it works, mm-hmm. and it works really, really well. Uh, his his performance in this is one of my favorite performances for him because of the range that he gets to go through. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, you know, Lee running the asylum, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but I, I feel like Lee sometimes plays Lee really, really well. <laughs> I totally understand that. I mean, and the and the thing about it is, I mean, when you when you get Christopher Lee in a Christopher Lee type role, that's that's what you want. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, he his character in this movie. I mean, it makes you wonder: is is the guy got like rocks in his shoes or something? Cause he is just so like like angry throughout the entire <laughs> film. He's he's got that that glint in his eye and uh-huh. that little. Smirk, you know that that Christopher Lee smirk. The very first scene with his half brother. Oh, your your wife is dead, and this this is probably a release for both of you. Oh, by the way, I refuse to fund your ridiculous experiments to the far reaches of the world. I mean, he just basically like you know. Oh, by the way, your wife's dead, and uh, I ain't giving you any money anymore. So you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Right. I mean, it's basically what it is. Determination and just his seriousness in these roles. Lee's character, Dr. James Hildern, is running an asylum, and he's doing all these bizarre experiments, which are not really explained all that well in the movie. Right. He, it's almost as if he's just doing experiments because he's Christopher Lee and he can. <laughs> there, there's, all these, there's all these body parts, you know, that are being re- revitalized by electricity that, that Lee's assistant is putting electricity into, and, and Lee walks in the room, and he, like, observes these body parts. He has the most serious, stern look on his face. It's like he's literally 
examining them for real. Like he's really doing, like he's really, you know, doing some sort of like, like survey on this or something. I mean, the, the look on his face is so steely. It, it's almost unintentionally funny, but I, I love that about him. I mean, he is just so into these movies. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. No, he, he plays, Lee's a great villain. I like when he plays hero every once in a while, which he didn't do yeah. enough, but he's a great villain. And, you know, I mentioned Horror Express earlier. I'm going to mention it again. One of my things about one of my favorite things about Horror Express is the level of rivalry between Lee's character and Cushing's character, and you have that yeah, in this yeah. as well. You know, Lee's character yeah. is trying to win that award, and you know he's going to get it one way or the he, other. Yeah, and Lee explains, "I used to be the poor half brother, and you're the older half brother." So there's kind of like a family rivalry going on there. Mm-hmm. But but the other thing, you know, when it comes to Cushing Lee movies. A lot of them, they barely interacted with one another, and a few of them, they had no scenes together at all. This is a real Cushing and Lee movie, and what I mean by that is both of them have major roles. They interact with each other throughout the film. There, there's a reason for their interaction. It's not contrived. I mean, you know, you, you get your money's worth with this Cushing and Lee movie, and some of them you really didn't. So that, I think that's why it, another reason why I love this film so much. It, it, it really does feature Cushing and Lee together. They spend a lot of screen time together, uh, kind of bristling at each other, especially Lee bristling towards Cushing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the bit, he, he just has no compassion. Sorry <laughs> your wife died and you're cut off. See ya. I know. And as soon as he finds out about the uh, the, the skeleton and how the skeleton might hold the key to his uh, researches, he just like just marches right in. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take this guy's skeleton. You know, I'm just going to take right. it. I'm just going to kill it. But, you know. Oh, well, you know, what about ethics? His assistant says, what about ethics? Well, I'll have to find someone that for ethics has no significance. You know, he just... (laughs) It's unfortunate we can't do these experiments on normal people. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly we understand why that guy was strapped to electricity in the asylum. (laughs) Weird electroshock that Cushing walks in on. It's those little touches because, you know, one of the biggest complaints I have when I watch the Cushing Lee movies, and, you know, I've seen them all except Arabian Adventure, which I don't think I'm missing anything there, but (laughs) one of the biggest problems with Cushing Lee movies, you don't get enough of Cushing and Lee. And so all all these scenes in the asylum where, you know, you have all these weird experiments going on, and on the one hand, you can say, well, what the heck is that for? But on the other hand, I I like it because they're, they're there and they're doing something. Yeah. You know, it's not the usual Cushing Lee movie where... You know, you never see them, or they're barely in it. I mean, they're they're in it all the way mm-hmm. here, and I, I think that's great. No, it's really good. It's another reason why I like Horror Express, and I keep bringing it up, is because you get to see the two of them interact. Yeah. I love the movie Night to the Big Heat, but I'd love it even more if Lee and Cushing had more to do together. You know, that, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, the whole that whole movie is Patrick Allen lusting after this one girl, and you know it's almost Cushing and Lee are almost like on the side. You know that that's a that's a really weird. Film. I love the movie. I mean, I, I love it a lot. But no, yeah. you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But you know, this movie does deliver, and you know some of the other performances they're they're pretty solid too. I, I think uh, the girl who played the daughter, Penelope, uh, who's that Lorna Heilbron? Yeah, I think you're Lorna Heilbron. I, I don't know exactly. I, sh- I should have like like sent Christopher Gullo a message or something. He'd probably know how to pronounce it. He's the head of the PCA, Peter Cushing Association. I, I think <laughs> her name is is Heilbron. That, that's how I'll pronounce okay. it. So I, I apologize if I if I'm pronouncing it wrong. If she's out there somewhere, no, she. Well, I, she's I, I, very I know good. she's a listener, so you, no. I'm just <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, Lorna was pretty she's good. Be, she, no, she has kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde type performance. 
And I think that's the only movie I've seen her in, unless she's appeared in something and I just didn't realize it. But I think what makes her performance even better, she's not your standard scream queen. Right. You know, she's not she's not your typical hammer hottie bathing beauty type. And I'm not trying to say she's unattractive because she is attractive, but it's it's a different type of attractiveness than you know, the Ingrid Pitt type, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it's it's a great way. You're absolutely right. I mean, she and she has a transformation. She has a character arc, not necessarily of her own mm-hmm. uh, doing. <laughs> she she has no. some things done to her that, that makes her kind of switch. Uh, but, I mean, she goes from the sweet daughter who's happy to see her dad to the little upset that dad's not spending as much time with her, even though he's been gone for three years or however long he was gone, to what are you keeping yeah. from me, dad, to finding out about what he found about the, the mother and then everything that happens after he gives her a treatment. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's yeah, a roller I mean, coaster it, of of every uh, every emotion you could possibly get out of this character. I think, and she she really has to deliver the goods here. And you know, she and Cushing are very believable mm-hmm. as as a mother and daughter, uh, mother <laughs> and daughter, father and daughter. Sorry I, about I was going to edit that out. Uh, I'll leave that in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do wonders with editing. So. <laughs> No, but she's very good, and there's a few in the supporting roles here. There's a, there's a few uh, Hammer veterans. Uh, Duncan Lamont mm-hmm. is in it. I believe he's the uh, police inspector. He's been in several Hammer films. Uh, there's a cameo by Michael Ripper. My man. He's the one lead guy who's bringing the skeleton in at the beginning of the film. Yep. <laughs> and what's great about that is, is you know, Cushing is just he's just all a Twitter over the skeleton. Oh, look at this find, and this is the greatest thing ever. And Michael Ripper's just standing here with his hand out expecting a tip, and Cushing just is like totally oblivious to him. It's just a nice little humorous moment. I mean, some people might not even catch it. But it, it's just one of those nice little things that, that gives the film a little bit extra, and I, I just love that type of stuff. Well, and Michael Ripper, it's just amazing. I love Michael Ripper. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but I just realized this last night watching it again. One of the Asylum guards, his voice is Michael Ripper's voice, so Michael Ripper must must have dubbed in the guy's voice. Oh, okay. It, it It's Michael Ripper. I think it's the one guard with the gray beard who comes in and tells Christopher Lee Len- Lenny's missing. That That is Michael Ripper's voice. There's, huh. there's no doubt of it. I wonder why they did that. You know how these films are. Maybe the line reading just didn't, they didn't have time to, you know, reshoot the scene. They just, well, you know, we'll just get, you know, somebody to dub it in or whatever. Sure. I and mean, maybe I- Michael Ripper was in there doing some, you know, maybe he was dubbing his character in. And they said, hey, can you read this line? But no, he's, he's definitely, he's dubbed in the line of one of the uh, asylum guards. Well, good for him. I, I, I like Michael Ripper a lot. I, I love everything that he brings. Yeah, and it's it's very, very small role, but but like I said, that could have been a role that, you know, it could have been just a guy bringing the skeleton in, and that was it, and then he just gets up and leaves. But because it's Michael, I'm sure Freddie Francis did this on purpose. He probably had Michael Ripper say, hey, you know, act, act like you need a tip, you know, and, and Cushing is just so, just totally, you know, he, even though he's looking right at the guy, he's just totally oblivious to the fact that he's not going to pay this guy a tip. Right. I, I just love that. That's great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fantastic. And uh, uh, he mentioned the music a second ago. I, I'm a film score guy. I mean, people who listen to the show probably get tired of me talking about it, but I love my film scores. Paul Ferris is the composer on this, and yes. he did Witchfinder General or The Conqueror Worm, The Blood Beast Terror, another Cushing film, I believe. Um, I think he did music for a Karloff film. Didn't he do the music for The Sorcerers? You know, he might have, because I believe that would that would have been a Tygon film, because that was Michael Reeves. So I, I don't know for sure, but that that sounds about right. I mean, okay. that was made during this time period. I believe that was Tygon. 
So that that would make sense. So I guess you could say Paul Ferris was kind of like the house composer for yeah. Tiger. I, I I did I did not realize that he did those other films. Uh, no, he gives a very good score. It's it's not like a bombastic. It's not like a James Bernard type score. But I think it the very you know the main titles. You know you have that bizarre painting. You have this very low, very ominous music. So he yeah. sets the tone yeah. right away. And then the flashback where we experience from Cushing's eyes, of course, so whether it's a true flashback or not, we don't know. We kind of experience what he went through with his wife, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of music and how he, he makes the music go faster and faster as her emotional state gets worse and worse. That, that's a nice little thing right there. It's it's very smart composing. Uh, you know, it adds to the emotion versus yeah. making you have an emotion, you know, and that's, that's something that Bernard was really good at. Mm-hmm. And I think Ferris is a little bit more subtle. He did do a Barbara Steele film at one point. He uh, did the music for She Beast, which is kind of a, a guilty pleasure. Well, I'm not going to say guilty pleasure. I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but it, it's a movie that I really enjoy. I'll just say that. And I think that's also a Michael Reeves uh, production or film. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have that on DVD, but I have a lot of stuff on DVD. We're monster kids, man. That's what we do. <laughs> it's right. Somebody's got to buy these things or else they wouldn't put them out. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to say this really loud because my wife's in the other room. Somebody has to buy all these <laughs> movies. Otherwise, they wouldn't put them out. <laughs> That's right. You're contributing to the economy. I'm helping the economy. That's right. I am getting the best look from my wife. It's awesome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, she says oh. the economy would somehow survive without us. But oh, I don't wow. know. You don't know that, hon. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, yeah, there you go. Well, one thing I did want to say, one of the other things I love about the Creeping Flesh is the giant skeleton. I I love the fact that it's a non-traditional monster. It has kind of like a Lovecraftian old ones. Yes, I'm glad you said that. I I love the design of it. And I'll I'll ask you this. Don't you think that skeleton kind of reminds you of the skeletons in Planet of the Vampires? Yes, it does look like that a little bit. You could almost mm-hmm. say there's like a shared cinematic universe because, you know, my theory on the skeleton is maybe it's not humanoid at all. Maybe it's an alien and maybe it crash landed thousands of years ago. And when the flesh grows back, maybe it's not so much a supernatural thing as it is. It's it's just an alien. It's thing. just how the science works. Yeah. And, and when Cushing injects his daughter with the blood of this creeping flesh, it has nothing to do with evil. It's just, you know, he's injecting alien blood into his daughter without really testing it, and that's why she went off the way she did. Oh, Peter Cushing, what are you thinking? <laughs> why, why did you do that? It's like, you know, this is not going to end well. Well, he, was, he wasn't right all the time. I mean, yeah. I, mean think, I mean, think how many times Baron Frankenstein screwed up, which is like just about every movie. So. <laughs> it's true. It's true. No, I did like the design of the of the uh, the monster, the skeleton, quite a bit. It was just alien enough to pose a threat, to not be familiar. But I'm so glad you brought up the Lovecraft, because, again, that's something else that I tend to harp on a lot. So it wasn't just me this time, listeners. It <laughs> There is a Lovecraftian vibe. <laughs> to this. In fact, I think this movie would play just fine at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland. It has that vibe. You know, like I said, the whole thing about something unearthed of thousands and thousands of years ago and and the idea that there's something to a legend, you know, an ancient human legend, that there's actually a basis, a scientific basis to it. And here's the thing, you, you could make the case that this skeleton isn't really evil at all. It's, it's just doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. And the whole evil is, is just, you know, the Victorian attitudes of, of Cushing and Lee and, and the people in the cast. 
you know, the whole thing about where at the end where the skeleton kind of, you know, goes after Cushing, he's not really going after him. I mean, he's basically getting back what he <laughs> what he was taken from him. <laughs> but, you know, you could say that there isn't really any monster in this movie except the intentions that went went wrong due to the main characters. Right. Again, that's a very Lovecraftian approach in that mm-hmm. you don't – they're not evil because they don't really exist within our – definitions of what good and evil are they just exactly are. and and whatever whatever humans try to do is basically insignificant it's it's not going to make right. much of a difference that's basically what happens in the creeping flesh i mean whatever cushing does whatever lee does uh no matter what their motives in the end it doesn't really uh doesn't really saw i mean i guess you could say lee kind of you know wins in the end quote unquote if you want to call it that but yeah uh, d- d- does he win i guess so i mean he got his award yeah, and, that's right. And, and the guy who, I don't know, the only person who can speak out against him, I suppose, or or bust him for anything, is locked up. Yeah, and I I love how, uh, you know, when Lee takes the skeleton, he wraps it in that cloak, and I love the visual image of that. Oh, it's so you know, good. The, the giant skeleton in that cloak, and you you see scenes of it, it's in the forest, and it's like out in the distance, and it's approaching Cushing's house and the shadow gets, you know, larger and larger. That's a great shot. I, I love those type of shots. That's Freddie Francis, the cinematographer speaking through yes, Freddie Francis, yes, the director. Yeah. The, yeah the, and that, that's what, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this. It's what monster kids really love about these movies. It's not about the gore, about people getting killed. It's just the visual things that inspire our imagination. Right. You know, the, the fantastical images, you know, and it, it all starts, you know, you see monster movie books when you're a kid or monster movie magazines, and you're, you're so captivated by these stills that makes you want to see these films. And, of course, you find out many times the stills are better than the actual movie. Well, yeah. But that, that, that's, what, that, that's what gets you into these films. I mean, that, that's what it is for me. It's, it's not about violence or watching women get killed or, you know, or anything like that at all. You know, for me, it was the Crestwood House books that got me hooked. Mm-hmm. I read those when I was a kid. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm slowly rebuilding my collection of those, or, or building a collection. I never owned them as a kid. I just had to check them out from the library over and oh, over. Oh yeah, over yeah, I, yeah. I think every every school library must have had them. And you know, I Star Wars came out when I was like eight years old, so that was like the perfect time for me. And that's why mm-hmm. Star Wars will always be like my favorite film of all time. I mean, that that's basically the film that that made me the movie geek I am today. <laughs> and you know, every, everything worked from that. You know, you watch other science fiction films, you watch Harry Allen movies, you oh, Peter Cushing, he made a monster movies. Well, I'm, I'm going to watch it, you know, the, it just one thing leads to another and and it just you discover things along the way and you keep discovering things. And that's the great thing about being a film buff is that you you can't watch every movie, so there's always things cropping up and and things going on and you know and and money that you spend on Blu-rays and DVDs, but it, it's great. I love it. I mean, you know. Yeah, I I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> there's never enough time. Never enough time to watch nope. all the movies. Yeah. Nope. But when you do find something like this, you know, as much as I'm always looking for new movies to find and discover and enjoy. And I was talking about this with the previous person I was recording with earlier today, that how amazing is it to find something that you either thought you saw or you heard about, but never saw. And and finally sit down to watch it and find out you love it so much. I love that experience, but I also like going back to the ones that we love. And I know I'm going to go back to this one. A lot of these films, you, you basically see twice. You see them like on Sengulli or on TV. And of course, they're pan and scan, they're edited, they're with commercials. Then when they start coming out on DVD and Blu-ray, you see them in widescreen. You see them 
restored and you, and you see how you know they look brand new and you see them unedited then you, it's almost like seeing them again for another time <laughs> that's true right and a lot of these monster movies if you hadn't seen them in a while and you see them again then you almost reevaluate them i mean mm-hmm. I, i've done that plenty of times you know i'll watch a certain movie and i think oh this, this movie wasn't really all that great for whatever reason it didn't attract my interest and you see something like you know five ten years down the line you see it again it's like well that was a little bit better than i thought it was i mean and and that's the thing is that you can always change your opinions you can always uh reevaluate certain things uh you know if if a certain actor that you didn't know was in a certain film you you watch it again and then well because of this actor this actress you start looking at the film in a different way i i think the creeping flesh you know it, it it still holds up i mean i liked it when i first saw it like uh I think it was like the 1980s. I think I rented it from the video store or something. That was one that I'm pretty sure Sven Gulli never showed it. It, it, it. At least in my area, it never really popped up on TV or anything. I was going to ask you, you know, since we're talking about reevaluating them, the first time you saw this was on VHS? Yes. Okay. Video cassette. Wow. Yeah, it was like back in the 1980s. There was a video store, and they they had a few of the you know not not so lot not a lot of Hammer movies, but they had a few. I mean, not, this isn't a Hammer film, but they had a few like English Gothic films, mm-hmm. and I'd rent them you know over and over again because that's you know that's what but you that, do. That was one that I mean, obviously Cushing and Lee, one I hadn't seen before, but like I said, I don't think I'm pretty sure it wasn't on Sven because I, I have vivid memories of watching certain films on Singuli for the very first time. Yeah. Which, which you know, I mean, I, I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago, but I can't remember. <laughs> oh, yeah, that film I saw on Singuli for the very first time. So, yeah, I saw it on VHS. I had it on DVD, and it has just come out, I think it was like a couple months ago. Mill Creek released it on Blu-ray alongside Torture Garden and The Brotherhood of Satan. I think they they call it the Psycho Circus set or whatever. I I don't know where they got that name from. Of all people to put it out, Mill Creek. So yeah, when you compare the Mill Creek Blu-ray to all the previous versions you've seen, how does it compare? Because I've only seen it on DVD and Blu-ray, so I think it looks pretty good. I mean, it, it's it's Mill Creek. I know people get into the bit rates and the compression rates, and they they rag on Mill Creek because all three of the films are on one disc. Right. I, I, it looks pretty good. I mean, like I said, it color looks fine. I, I would say it's probably a little bit better than the DVD. Okay. Probably, you know, I, it, it's a worthy purchase because, you know, when I got it from Amazon, it was like seven bucks. I mean, you're getting three movies on Blu-ray for seven bucks. Okay. So, yeah. And and to me, the Creeping Flesh alone is is definitely worthy of that. Uh, Torture Garden. Torture Garden's okay. The the best part about Torture Garden is the last story with Peter Cushing and Jack Palance the man who collected Poe, the Robert Bloch story. And The Brotherhood of Satan, I had never seen before, and that's a very, very weird film. It's an odd one, I felt like, to put on this collect with these yeah, other movies. I, but, you know? Yeah. If they had the rights to it and they had to fill some space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing I need to bring up, Hedger Wallace is the actor who played Poe in The Man Who Collected Poe story in Torture Garden, okay. and he plays Christopher Lee's main assistant in The Creeping Flesh. Oh, okay. So you could say this is a, this is a Hedger Wallace set. <laughs> There's your connection right there. Everybody, All right. Everybody, everybody out there is a Hedger Wallace fan. This is the Blu-ray you got to get. So. <laughs> and how can you not be a fan, right? Yeah, or, yeah. Or I something. Mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, the guy, the guy played Edgar Allan Poe, so, you know. <laughs> And, and and he's helping Christopher Lee electrolyze body parts. So I mean, <laughs> that he is. <laughs>
Uh, but it, it's a good presentation. I would recommend the uh, the Blu-ray as well. It's incredibly affordable because yes. it's Mill Creek. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, I know you know there's some people out there kind of you know oh Mill Creek, but these are the same people complain about oh Criterion and Twilight Time. These things are so expensive. I mean, you, you, you're going to get what you pay for. I mean, there's absolutely no extras. I don't even think there's like a scene extra. I think as soon as you put it in, it starts up. But yeah, it goes straight to yeah. the movie um, it, or or to the menu. Yeah, 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 menu. Yeah, um, it it really did deserve, I think, at least a commentary from somebody like Jonathan Rigby or our buddy Troy Harworth, because it, this is, I think, one of the best Peter Christian Christopher Lee films, and I think it might be one of the best directed Freddie Francis films. Huh. Okay. I. Yeah, I think I'm really um, I'm trying to think. I mean, if if you take away the anthology films, because I know he directed a ton of those, just just straight direction, you know, straight linear story. What would be the best uh, Freddie Francis film? He, it has to be in like up up near the top. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see that. I'm trying to think. Maybe, well, Jack Lesnar isn't from. I mean, Jack Lesnar isn't from the grave. I, <laughs> It, 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 everybody loves that movie. It's a fun Hammer movie, but you know it has some so many. I mean, goofy story elements to it. It's good. I dig it. But no, I, hmm. well, it's right up there. If it's not the best, it's one of the yeah. best. So I'll, we'll say that. Yeah, I think you can still get it pretty cheap. So I think listeners need to check it out. Is there anything else you want to say about the film? I think we covered just about everything. Um, I'm sure, you know, once we get done, like 20 minutes from now, I'm going to say, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that. That's how it always works. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it always works, man. No, I, I think <laughs> I, I think we covered all the main highlights. It, it is a very great Cushing Lee movie. It's a real Cushing and Lee movie. It, it's, you mm-hmm. know, you definitely get your money's worth. It's set in the Victorian period. It's better than some of their hammer outings. So I definitely recommend it. Especially from this era. Especially mm-hmm. from this era. Agreed. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. I think you're absolutely right. Well, have you talked about this on your blog? Uh, I'm sure you I have, did, haven't you? I did write a blog post about the Blu-ray. I didn't really get into uh, the creeping. I mean, it was just kind of like a thing where, the, you know, there's these three movies on there. I, I gave like a, like a one-paragraph description of the films, but I didn't really like go into detail with it. I was just more like, you know, talking about what was on the Blu-ray. Okay, yeah, I was just looking at that. It looks like back in April you talked about the Blu-ray itself. Listeners, check it out. It's dandayjunior35.blogspot.com. I will make sure there's a link in the show notes to this. It's the Hitless Wonder Movie blog, and you're pretty consistent. You're always putting stuff up, you know, two, three times a week, it looks like. Yeah, uh, sometimes I can't get to it as much as I'd like to. Um, I work, I actually do work for a living. So, you know, sometimes you come home from work and you're just like, oh, you know, do I really want to, you know, write a blog? I mean, and then there are certain times where you just, you just find inspiration and you just, boom, you just write it out. And unfortunately, there are times when somebody passes away or something, you know, bad happens in the industry and, and you kind of, you know, feel like you have to uh, make mention of that. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I don't do just, you know, straight monster movies. I, I basically cover all types of films. I mean, I silent films, you know, 30s, 40s, comedies. N- not, not a lot of uh, newer films. I mean, when I do go see a new film, if there's something I feel I need to talk about, I'll, I'll write a blog on it. But I'm, I'm not limited to any one type of genre or anything like that. But I, I, I do have to say, it seems like the more obscure monster movie I write about, that's the one I get more hits on. So... <laughs> I think there's a real dearth for uh, a dearth of knowledge when it comes to a lot of the more obscure films. Like 
there's no commentary track on this. So all we really have to go exactly. off of if we're going to watch exactly. this movie is what we can find online or, yeah. or dig through a couple of books that may have covered it or not because it is a smaller studio. It's Tygon. You know, yes. So it's not like there's a lot of Tygon source books out there. I can think of one yeah. off the top of my head. Well, uh, actually, another thing I did last night, I have uh, Mark Miller's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and horror cinema filmography, that's the McFarlane book, where he covers all oh, the okay. films, and he wrote a very wonderful chapter on The Creeping Flesh. Unfortunately, Mark Miller passed away a few years ago, but he, he, he just absolutely loves the, he loved the Creeping Flesh, and that, that chapter mm-hmm. kind of gave me some more insight on the film as well. And I think, actually, he said in that chapter that he felt it was Freddie Francis's best-directed film. Oh, okay. So it, there, there are some adherents to it out there, but I think a lot of people... Because of Cushing Lee and Freddie Francis in the the Victorian period, a lot of people kind of take it for granted. You know, it's like, oh well, you know, it's one of those Cushing Lee movies where you know they're in the Victorian era and there's a monster, and and people kind of gloss over it or they think, well, you know, it's just same old, same old. And as you and I know, that you you can't really put that spin on you know these type of films. There there are there are very different, very divergent titles in in this genre. So yeah, I agree. Well, listeners, check it out if we haven't already whet your appetite. It's got a great finale, a real cool zinger at the end, uh, great performances, nice subtle music, beautiful direction, yes. and one heck of a fan in Dan. That's right. <laughs> it's got Cushing and Lee in it. What more do you need? That's true. And, that's and true. they're walking around in frock coats and spats. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's the... <laughs> so that's a bonus right there. That's right. That's what we're saying. <laughs> During the conversation, I made reference to recordings that I did at Monster Batch, the summer Monster Batch earlier this year, and even a conversation that I had with Veronica Carlson that I recorded. Well, I did not put that out on the show yet. Despite what I told Dan, it's not here on the feed yet. So you didn't miss anything. In fact, I'm kind of sitting on it. My intention is to release the Veronica Carlson recording, which does involve us talking a little bit about Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and what she thought of Joshua's new movie. I want to play that when I have Joshua on the show again next, which is something that I'm working on right now with him and Stephen D. Sullivan. For a good half of a year now, Joshua, Stephen, and I, or is it Josh and Steve and I? I, You know, I don't know if I ever, do I call him Josh or Joshua? Anyway, Joshua and Steve or Stephen D. Sullivan and I have been talking about coming onto the show and talking about a Hammer film, The Reptile. No, Veronica Carlson isn't in that movie, but because she's a Hammer actress, I thought it would be appropriate to include her conversation in that episode as well. Plus, Steve wrote some bits of Josh's latest film, so there's going to be some talk about that as well. As of right now, there's been no confirmed release date for Theseus and the Minotaur. As soon as it happens, though, I'll let you guys and gals know, because I think you're going to dig it. Anyway... Dan Day Jr. Dan, it was awesome to have you on the show. Uh, it was a lot of fun to chat with a new person, and I really appreciate having met you at Monster Bash and, you know, The Creeping Flesh. It's a good one. Maybe next time I'll have you back on to talk about The Creeping Terror. What do you think? You have been tried and condemned of crimes almost without number. Your efforts to build an empire of crime have today brought you to the end you so richly deserve. Death to Fu Manchu. On the face of Fu Manchu. There's a man whom I thought was dead. Now I believe he's still alive. 
He's cruel, callous, brilliant, and the most evil and dangerous man in the world. He used as his most trusted servants a gang of Burmese dacoits and taught them to strangle their victims with these prayer scarves from Tibet. From this fog-shrouded graveyard in London's Limehouse, the evil genius of Dr. Fu Manchu stalks its victims. Christopher Lee as the merciless Dr. Fu Manchu, who cast a black shadow of fear across innocent lives. Nigel Green as the assistant commissioner at Scotland Yard, pitted against a master criminal who dreamed of world domination. Joachim Fuchsberger. Karin Dorr. Her life was balanced against the fate of millions. Tsai Chin as Lin Tan, daughter of Fu Manchu. Guest star James Robertson Justice. Eastward from the Museum of Oriental Studies. It must be stopped. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen, and that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, The chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. If you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night, then you are in for a shattering surprise. Lust for a vampire. Disciples of the Black Mass. Devils in female bodies whose embrace is the kiss of death for man or woman. <coughs> Lust for a Vampire. Released by American Continental Films in color. Rated R. Hi, this is Joshua Kennedy, director of Attack of the Octopus People, Dracula AD 2015, and the Vesuvius Experiment. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio. Enjoy. I don't have anything prepared. I kind of decided to do this last minute. 
if I was paying attention to the calendar and I didn't let this month get away from me the way I have the past several months, I probably would have prepared something that I could have read or at least some notes that I could refer to when I talk to you guys and gals, the Monster Kid Radio listeners, about what I'm thankful for. It is Thanksgiving here in the States, and I know it can sometimes feel a little schmaltzy and over-the-top and forced to do the whole tell-me-what-you're-thankful-for kind of thing. But I, I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, and this isn't me being schmaltzy or, or corny or canned or fake or disingenuous, I am thankful for you guys and gals. I love what I do. I love podcasting. I adore it. This is something I've been doing since 2008. It's not something that I would continue to do if I didn't love it so much. And over the years, I've been propped up by various podcast listeners and other podcasters and have made so many friends along the way. Monster Kid Radio is really the culmination of everything that I've done up to this point. I loved what I did when I was producing Mail Order Zombie, and people used to know me by the name Brother D, and I used to talk about zombie movies all the time. My evolution, my progression as a fan of genre films and as a podcaster, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those experiences, and I made some lifelong friendships through Mail Order Zombie, so I appreciate that. Of course, 1951 Down Place, which has been on hiatus for quite some time, but stay tuned because there is another episode coming very soon. Can't wait to put that out there. You know, that also brought me some people and some friendships and some relationships that I cherish to this day. Of course, with Monster Kid Radio, I am a Monster Kid. I am the producer of Monster Kid Radio. This is who I am. More often than not, you're going to find me wearing a t-shirt with some sort of classic monster movie thing on it or a modern kaiju film. But I still think that counts. I love that I have been able to find my passion and create Monster Kid Radio and the community that sprung up around it. It's not just me. That's you guys and gals. And I want to thank you for that. I've had so many amazing experiences since launching Monster Kid Radio. So many opportunities have come my way. I've had an opportunity to speak with Victoria Price and meet her and call her a friend. I've had an opportunity to meet Sarah Karloff and swap a few emails with her. And of course, Monster Bash. I've been to Monster Bash twice, and this last time was incredible to get to Monster Bash because you guys and gals wanted me to get to Monster Bash. That means so much to me. I really appreciate everybody's support. I am incredibly thankful for the fan art that I've received, artwork that I've gotten in the mail. In this past month, I've received two Blu-rays in the mail from listeners of Monster Kid Radio. One of them I met in person at Monster Bash. The other person... I've never met in real life, but you have sent me movies and thanked me for what I've done. And I really appreciate you dipping into my Amazon wish list and finding something that I'd like. And you can never go wrong with a John Agar movie. So thank you, John, for sending me that movie. That's awesome. I can't wait to dive into it. And the other movie I received, well, it's a Japanese monster movie, fantasy comedy thing. It's called House. We're going to be talking about that sometime next year with the gentleman who sent it to me, Steve Turek. So again, thank you, Steve, for that. Really appreciate it. And just to have the support, even if it's something as simple as an email saying thank you for the show, that's cool. I mean, that means so much. Getting the feedback, getting the conversations going, the interactions that I have on Facebook with people, the people that I've met virtually, and then people that I've met in person. When I did the Scarathon at the Joy Cinema at the end of October, I met some listeners of the show, people that came up to me and wanted to talk about the surf music and where do I find it. To meet somebody at the Scarathon 
because his kid wanted to meet me. His his son wanted to say hi. And I, I don't know how old he was. I'm terrible at guessing ages, but he just wanted to say hi. And we ended up talking about monsters for a good five minutes. And that was cool. These are all things that have come from you. Yes, I have a Patreon campaign. And yes, I'm terrible at making sure I'm up to date on all the rewards. Need to get that resolved by the end of the year. And I'll probably revise the reward tiers again, make it a version four next year, because clearly I'm not able to stay on top of it. But you guys and gals have been patient with me as I go through that and work through that process. So thank you for being involved with the Patreon. Thank you for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you for liking me on Facebook or sharing the posts or retweeting the tweets. I, I don't do a lot on Twitter, so I assume people post about the new episodes when they come out. So thank you for that as well. I wouldn't be as happy as I am if it wasn't for the back and forth and the communication and the friendship that I've developed with you guys and gals over the years. So thank you so much for being part of this Monster Kid's life. I'm going to keep doing Monster Kid Radio for as long as I possibly can, and I still want to get the Monster Kid Radio network up and running and bring in some new shows. In fact, there are some talks, uh, some more than talks, actually. You're going to hear a sampling of something in December that I'd like to bring to Monster Kid Radio on the regular, if we can make it happen. And, yeah, there's some old shows that somebody else produced a while back that we might be able to bring in as well that are kind of sort of relevant to MKR. So stay tuned for that. You know, I'd love to bring in some people to kind of help with some website stuff and just really build the Monster Kid Radio footprint on the internet and, and make it bigger than, well, the blog that it basically is right now. I'd love to have more interaction online. And, and I know that it's going to happen because I got guys and gals like you yeah, you, the one with the headphones, the ones listening right now, people like you backing me up and downloading the show and making what I do part of your experience. So again, thank you so much. Like I said, I didn't write any of this down, so I probably rambled a little bit. I may play this back, and as I'm editing it, decide that it's just way too... Ugh. But, you know, I mean it from the bottom of my Monster Kid heart. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. A couple things to go over real quick. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. We've got our contact information there. I mentioned it before. I'm going to mention it again. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can send me an email at MonsterKidRadio at Gmail. Com. Of course, there's links to everything that we've talked about here on the show over there at monsterkidradio.net as well, including Dan's awesome website, the Hitless Wonder Movie Blog, at dandayjr35.blogspot.com. We have links to our Patreon campaign, so you can help support the show that way. We have links to our Facebook page on our Facebook group. We have a survey you can take to become a guest on Monster Kid Radio. And, of course, links to the musicians that provide their music to the show as well. What's coming up next week? Well, if you go back into the archives and you look at the graphic I released at the beginning of November announcing what shows are coming out this month, you're only going to see four shows. There are five Thursdays in November. So what's happening at the end of November, the 5th November episode? Ooh, it's a mystery. What's it? Okay, it's not a mystery. I'm going to tell you. The Holiday Gift Guide. It's coming back. The Monster Kid Radio Holiday Gift Guide is coming out next week. It's just going to be audio. I'm not doing video this year. And it's coming. And I'm really excited because I got some really cool things that have happened this year. Some products that have come out from various companies that I think, if you have any Monster Kids in your life, you might do well to pick up a few of these things. Heck, a lot of it's on my personal wish list. So 
it. I know it's good stuff. So that's coming up next week. And then in December, I'll give you a taste. We've got Stephen E. Sullivan coming back. We're going to talk about the Curse of the Crimson Altar. we got Troy Haworth coming back. We're going to be talking about the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. And a few other things in the works as well. So stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Next week as well, we're going to make live the survey for you to vote for your favorite Choose the Caption caption contest that I've been running for the past several weeks in which I asked you to provide a caption for the picture of me interviewing Barbara Steele on stage at this past year's Lovecraft Film Festival in Cthulhu Con. Con. So that'll be coming as well. And on a personal note, last week I mentioned that I had to go get my head scanned. (laughs) Um, A friend of mine asked if I got the test results back, and I said yes. And then she promptly asked, does it show that your brain is a potato? Well, I I don't know what that means. Um, But no, (laughs) the MRI did not show that my head was a potato. Uh, Those of you who follow me on Facebook know that I have tinnitus or tinnitus, and it's been pretty bad lately. And we wanted to get a scan, an MRI, to make sure there wasn't anything physically going on in my head that could be causing that, as opposed to it being a nerve thing, which is what a lot of tinnitus is. And no. There's no blockages, there's no growths, there's no tumors, there's no pencils stuck in my ear, there's nothing physically there to cause the tinnitus. So that's a good thing. Although the MRI did say something about my nasal passages and and some other things that could be going on unrelated to the tinnitus, so yay, I get to investigate that. That'll be fun. Anyway, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on board, and I meant everything I said earlier. You guys and gals are the best. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, it doesn't apply to the song, Who's Afraid of the Dark? That comes from the surf band, The Primitive Finks. They are based out of New Jersey, and you can find their EP, Horror Party Stomp, at theprimitivefinks.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Ooh, <laughs>